Before uh, we bring our guest in, we were talking to Evie, who is from is Greek, and we were talking about our trip to Greek Greece. And Susan, you said you want to go back. It was last year. It, it was a year. I can't believe it. It was June, right? Something like that. Was July. It? Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. So it wasn't quite a year ago. It feels like uh, eternity ago. The way everything's been going in the world. But um, so, where do you want to go back to? I want to go to Portugal. Mm-hmm. And I want to go to Prague. Ah. And I'll go to France. Okay. Well, and then maybe, or Portugal and Spain. Well, I'm ready to go. I, I really want to get out of this country as soon as I can. Uh, to that point, Evie Pomporis joins us. She is a TV personality, journalist, former U.S. Secret Service special agent, expertise in national security, law enforcement, and human behavior. She was a first responder during 9-11, and she was honored with the Secret Service Valor Award. She also served the Secret Service Presidential Protective Division for President Barack Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama, also had been uh, working in, I believe, two other White Houses, if we'll get that straight in a second. And she is the author of the best-selling book, Becoming Bulletproof, which is a book full of very, very useful information, particularly in today's world. And I thought uh, on the heels of all that's going on in Eastern Europe and what's going on in this country and what we've been dealing with for the last several years, she would be an interesting person to hear her thoughts. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Evie, welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Drew. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Did you? You you as well. Did you recognize any of those uh, clips before we uh, pulled in here, the opening of the show where we're all in our boxes like we used to be on HLN? I did. I did. I had tons of nostalgia from our days. Yes. Dr. Drew on call. I loved it. It was fun. So what are you doing these days? To talk to well, let's let's do let's do three things. Let's first talk about the book. Tell people about why you wrote Bullet, becoming bulletproof and what they can learn. Secondly, I want an update on what you're doing now, and then we're going to talk about sort of your I've got one of your assessment of a few things that are going on in the world. So the book. What can people learn with the book? So the book is really it's actually quite timely. When I wrote it, you know, COVID had just you know started ha- happened actually quite later and. It's really about overcoming fear, living fearlessly, thinking through things, not panicking through things, and how to process difficult situations thoughtfully. So it's essentially, and it's it's almost like three books in one. So you have the first part is protecting yourself. How do you protect yourself physically and mentally? Mental resilience as well, not just the physical aspect. Second part, body language, reading people, which as you know, Dr. Dewan, we've talked to you about so many times when we were talking about different criminal cases, how to read people, how to assess behavior. I don't know what somebody's being truthful versus not being truthful, right? Deception. And then the final part of the book is influencing strategies and communication. How do we communicate with people to elicit information to get what we want? And this really touches all key points, not just in our professional career, uh, whether you're a doctor and you're trying to get information from someone, whether you're an attorney or whether you're dealing with people. It's how do we get people to, how do we communicate with them well? Because we always want to get people to yes on their own, right? 
And then, so mm-hmm. it's really kind of a, a book that takes everything together. And then it's just about mindset process and dealing with adversity and overcoming everything. So it's just kind of a guide to life. It's it's a great book with lots of really interesting specific, uh, not not the kind of specifics you see in a health in a self help book. It's specifics from somebody who's got years of doing interrogation and working as a secret service agent in extraordinary circumstances. The one thing that I noticed people really responded to were some of the tells, and I don't I don't want to. I still want people to buy the book, so I don't want to spoil, be a spoiler necessarily, but the tells around deception, you had so many really good specifics. Give, give them a couple. So, you know, I wanted to dispel a lot of myths because there's so much misinformation out there where people will tell you, if somebody does this, then they're a liar. And it doesn't take into consideration how different and unique people are. So the one thing I teach in the book is about assessing human behavior, a specific human behavior. Who is across from you? What are they doing? What would be their normal baseline when they're having an unthreatening conversation? And then comparing that to when they're heightened, to when they're stressed out. And there are some techniques in there that you could look at, verbal techniques that you could look at when somebody speaks. So for example, let me give you something simple. When someone's speaking to you and they're telling you a story, they're recalling something, and they tell it to you and they quote someone else, or they use quotes in their speech, that is indicative of somebody being truthful and honest. Also something that most people don't know, and it's counterintuitive, when someone's sharing a story with you, they will, if they spontaneously correct themselves as they're telling that story, that is also truthful. When most people think, oh, they just corrected themselves, they must be lying. That's not the case, because a truthful person will want to make sure that they get the whole thing right. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of, it, and it's strategy, it's tactic, it's technique. That's what the book is. It's not about theory. It's it's about look at this, assess this. When you see this, this is what it means. You know, something I've never asked you, I don't think, I, my memory is not as great as it used to be. So maybe we did have this conversation, but I don't believe we did. How did you get interested in the work you do? You know, I it's really different. I didn't have anybody in my li- in my family or in my life in law enforcement. I grew up in New York high crime area, um, public housing, government housing, because my family couldn't afford housing on their own. So we grew up around a lot of crime, a lot of bad things. And we were in an area that police didn't really give attention to. And so it was very fear-based, a lot of drugs in my neighborhood, a lot of crime. And so I grew up very much in an environment where it's, my parents were very afraid, don't go here, don't go there. I mean, we didn't even play outside in front of our house. So I think one of two things can happen to you. You either become more fear-based or you rebel against it. So I rebelled. And so just from there, I remember as, you know, after graduating college thinking, I want to be a police officer. And I started with the NYPD. It wasn't a clear path for me, but I knew, one, I wanted to shield and protect myself. You get tired of being a victim. And then two, I wanted to help other people. I wanted to be of service. And I think that was always big for me, just how can I be of service to people? And that's kind of how it started. It's a really important uh, sort of instinct to leading a good life. I'm sure it's been rewarding in a lot of ways for you. Um, I I wanna take your story about rebelling against feeling fearful and helpless, right? I imagine it was both, right? Helplessness and fearfulness, is that accurate? 
I think so, because there's moments where you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go to yeah. help. You, 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 yeah. you have not and, be there and you do, you feel helpless. And I yeah. think it can either diminish you or it can yeah. help push you figuring out, well, how do I change this? Okay. So, so I want to use your story and what you did and use that as a frame to look at what's been happening to this country since I last spoke to you, perhaps, which was that you, you mentioned that the book is about living fearlessly and not panicking. And the last, certainly during COVID, has been precisely the opposite. People have been in a panic. The press has been hell-bent on inducing panic. People have been told they are helpless against this causative agent. Uh, adolescents have been destroyed by that kind of messaging. And they have no ability to develop self-determination because their face is covered so they can't. And they're told not to go near their peers so they don't develop that peer support. It feels to me like not only have we been living in fear rather than fearlessly, we've actually transitioned into hysterics. We've like I've delusional thinking on all sides. I hear people getting preoccupied about various sorts of um, conspiracy theories, or Nazis are everywhere, or Russians are coming. Whatever it is, that's delusional. That is delusional thinking, and it's everywhere now. People have said things like that to me five years ago. I would have put them in the hospital. Now it's sort of routine. How come? My real question is: How come there hasn't been more rebelling against the the fearfulness? I, that's one of the questions I've had. I would think adolescents and young people would go, "Screw this! I don't want to live in fear. I want to do something." active with and you know no more you can't tell me to do that anymore we're going to figure out other strategies no one seems to be or very few people seem to be in that way of thinking am i right and and if i am right why do we think that is you know it's interesting because when all this was happening i remember assessing it and thinking there's two types of people that are going to come out of this people and i think the majority that are going to get pushed down be super afraid super consumed by this, extremely fear-based, and then other people who are going to rise above this and deal with this in a very different way. And you, I do agree with you because, and I'm, I'm, an, I'm an adjunct professor, so I see my students as well. We're back at, um, even you know, seeing it in the youth, we're back at on campus mm -hmm. teaching and see even my mm -hmm. students and how their behavior is very timid, very fear-based. But when you are surrounded by this narrative, and you are on your device, you're on Twitter, you're on TikTok, you're on all the social media, and this is all you're consuming, and your friends are consuming this, and your parents are consuming it with the news on 24 hours a day, of course it's gonna happen. And so you've got this collective group mindset that you can't escape, it's fear upon fear. And this is where people have to, on their own, disengage. And then also, you have to think of two things too when you're consuming information from someone. I, I always do this asse assessment. Who is this person? Why should I listen to them? Yeah. And if you're just consuming yeah. to consume, it's going to throw you off. And I think what we've done is we've lost our ability to self-navigate, to self-assess, to listen to our voice, which is what you're touching on. Why are people not able to ground themselves and center themselves and create their own decisions, their own thoughts? Because they're in an environment where they are so inundated by everything and everyone around them. Also, Dr. Ju, if you are around other people who are very fear-based, what are you going to mm -hmm. become? Your parents or loved ones or those close to you 
are fear-based. You will become that. Yes, but I will point back to you and your experience. You could also rebel against that. It could be, I'll have none of this. Thank you very much. And and by the way, in addition to being inundated by the negativity and the fear, anybody who dares to do anything proactive or to push back or to have a positive bias gets attacked and destroyed. And that's something new. That is a weird, again, that's, that I, I, I wrote a book about uh, narcissism uh, 14 years ago or so, and I wanted to do a, a chapter about revolutionary France because that was the only other period of history where I could find the same degree of narcissism as we have now. And I kept kept saying to my my editor, like, I just know the guillotines are coming out. That's the only thing I I just where this goes. It goes into mob behaviors, and here we are. Here we are. No actual guillotine. Instead, the cancel guillotine is sort of what we're using, and it's it's it's. It's very disturbing to me. Do, do you do you see a way out? Do you said you said to give kids the ability to be self-assessing, to be able to think for themselves? Essentially, is it working? I don't think so. And I also think what you're talking about, actually, what we're seeing is a very group uh, in and out group thing. It's either I'm in this group, mm -hmm. and you're in, if you're not in my mm -hmm. group, you're in the other group. And so mm -hmm. I think let me know what. What your assessment is so it's like i want to feel like i belong to something so i'm going to be in this in group and if you disagree mm -hmm. with me then i'm going to put you in this out group and so i can identify mm -hmm. with this group which is the right group in my mindset and you're mm -hmm. going to be in the bad group the opposite group mm -hmm. and it gives us a sense of belonging it gives us a sense of self rather than being able to stand on our own it's come to a place where people are afraid to Stand on their own, say something, be different, because they're going to be pushed down and shut down, as you say. And that's mm -hmm, a loss mm -hmm. of self and a sense of identity, where it's either we're creating this narrative, you have to be in a group. And it's not even, you can't even be, mm -hmm. have some beliefs from one group or another. You must be all the way one way or all the way the other yeah. way. And I wonder yeah. if it's Dr. Drew, from a clinical perspective, do people do this to soothe themselves, to feel? more powerful instead of less powerful because they belong yes, to something of course yeah yes of course but but all all po you know polar thinking all black all white all positive all negative um hang on a second uh, caleb is uh, alerting me to something it is plugged in unless oh maybe the might have been the thing might have pulled out a little oh, bit yeah. so it's on now okay um but that kind of stark thinking you're either all good or all bad that's narcissism that, that's how narcissists think they, they can't they can't see a middle zone they have trouble with with any kind of nuance that somebody can be bad or problematic in certain circumstances and be an, actually a good person no if you if you seem to be in an out group you need to be destroyed you're all the way out and really what's in the narcissism is both feeling states and they can't tolerate them right I saw a great assessment by a psychoanalyst. Uh, I told you I was working on my French, and it was a French daytime talk show. And I was watching, and, he's, and they were talking about these narcissistic partners of these poor women who'd been abused by them and whatnot. And uh, this, uh, this analyst said, look, when he says, when he's attacking you and saying, you are something, I want you to hear instead, I am. In other words, whatever he's here, whatever a narcissist sees in the outside world, actually in themselves it's a projection and that is everywhere right now they people 
cannot tolerate the nuance. And I don't know about you, but I, I am super moderate. And so I see the excesses on both sides. I, I imagine that you feel the same way. I do. In fact, it's, I really abstain from commenting on certain topics because it's you, you're going to get attacked one way or another. There's so many people inserting, mm -hmm. inserting their opinions. And it's just become this mishmash of just random, this noise and hate and anger. Mm -hmm. And we are in mm -hmm. a space where the whole country is flowing. And I wonder if there's like an identity. I can only speak for the U.S. because I live here, but an identity in our culture right now of a uniform narcissism or a cultural narcissism. We are, yeah. the U.S. is a very identity-based country where we are taught that the individuals, the, the, the individual um, is more important than the Paramount. collective group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you're an individual, you matter. And so now maybe through social media, through all these different mm -hmm. platforms, everybody's trying to seek and validate themselves. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. I want to be a hero and I want to villainize you. In fact, there's a quote. Um, I, I don't recall who said it, but I, I thought it was a great quote, quote. It says, the bigger the hero, the bigger the villain. The more I villainize you, the bigger the hero that I feel, that I become. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. That's, that's interesting. That's yes, interesting. I, if I make you you... as that of a bad guy, then I will feel more powerful, yeah. more, more of the hero. That's interesting. I, that's an interesting, that's a, I think that's a nice wrinkle on this that uh, puts, throws into focus why people are so exercised about all this. It's just, you know, they have to make into people into outgroups and bad people in order to make themselves feel more heroic. And, and do you see a way out? Have you, I mean, you've obviously been thinking about this. Do you just feel helpless against this? What, what does your rebellious nature tell us about how we get through this? You know, I've, as myself, I feel grounded because I feel that I can think for myself and I don't know if we can get out of it. I think there will come a point where people will get sick of this. But even when I teach my students and I teach criminal justice and criminology, now I'm former law enforcement. I make sure that when I teach, I do not bring any of my biases in because I was former law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I tell my students, mm -hmm. my opinion does not matter. What I think does not matter. I will teach you the facts and then you make your own assessment. You have enough people telling you how to think and who to be. And until people realize that I am a product of what everybody is telling me to do, to think, to be, no one's going to stop. I think in some way people have lost the ability to really self-identify and hear their own voice. And quite frankly, it takes confidence to be able to do that. It takes mental stability, being grounded. And I wonder too, if because people are so unhinged, we're seeing a lot more mental health issues being coming up in society since oh, yeah. COVID, right? People's, so oh, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder if that also plays a role in people's inability to be able to listen to their own self and trust in their own self and their own inner voice. Yeah, and, and I would argue that that is the case and that there are many things layering uh, upon that, making it so. And we've already mentioned two, which is the echo chamber of what's bearing down on people. There is the fear of attack if they dare to have an alternative point of view. Uh, and there is the, the lack of uh, support because of all the social distancing and disengagement. I mean, people normally sort out some of these feelings, gain their ability to regulate by being with other people, being in the world. And that's been you know, shut down for quite some time and people are having a hard time 
getting it back. Uh, you mentioned biases also. I, I've noticed there's a fundamental cognitive bias at work in, in a lot of what's going on with COVID, which is uh, people are either positive or negatively biased. And the positively biased people want to sort of go, okay, BA2 is looking pretty good. We're, it's not looking that bad. It's, yeah, it's going to be a little surge here, but natural immunity plus hybrid with the vaccine looks great. People do fine with it. People with negative bias go, how dare you? Keep your mask on. Shut up. It's going to be a disaster. And that's and, and the negative bias rules right now, which is hard for me. You would think we you would think just the way we are as human beings that the positive bias would rule. It's so much healthier, so much healthier way to so again, you you don't panic, you're not you're not so fear-based. Panic and fear really never help. I mean, if you were and, and I'll have you speak to that. I mean, you've been in some horrible situations. Did fear and panic help you manage those situations? No. You can't think, you can't process, yeah. you can't make decisions. Yeah. You can't make decisions. You're not able to make decisions, you're not able to think for yourself. And I wonder if it's this also is really fear of death, right? This fear of death. And so you mentioned you had COVID. I had COVID as well. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I don't know too, if it comes from where I came from, law enforcement and then the US Secret Service, where every day I went to work, it could be my last day. And in some way I made mm -hmm. peace with, it could be my last day. And I've always lived with, okay, if tomorrow's my last day, I ask myself two questions or I try to live by this. Have I done everything I wanted to do? And if I haven't, did I set out to try to do the things I wanted to do? And I've always been okay with maybe tomorrow's my last day. And growing up, and maybe because my family came from villages where you know death or people passing was a bit of a normal thing. Mm -hmm. Today, I feel like it's become this thing we should be afraid of that's, that's, um, that shouldn't happen when it's going to happen to everyone. And rather than making it part of the narrative that, hey, this is a normal thing. This is something that will happen. It will happen to everybody. We've made it something outside. It's something that people don't like to talk about, something that's very fear-based. And I think being able to be at peace with your own mortality is also a very positive thing. Nobody lives forever. None yes. of us do. Yes. So having that, yes. that healthy, healthy psychological balance. It's interesting that, uh, of course, that's the, the work of the Stoics, right? The, you know, today could be your last day is one of their credos. And the Stoic philosophy is getting very popular these days, but not enough. <laughs> we need more of it. Also, we've, we've almost fetishized death. We've you know, made it this, this colossal problem when it's, if, if the reality is, if you don't want to die, you don't want to live. And that's really the, the reality about, about death. It's a, it's a feature of living. And we've, uh, and it's partly my profession's fault. We've hidden hidden it away in hospitals. We don't talk about it. We keep people alive indefinitely so people don't have to experience grief. I mean, and needlessly, and you know, to, to the for the patient. And it was weird to me. I'm going to bring a palliative care doctor in here in a, uh, soon. Uh, she does a podcast called Brain Science, which I like also. And it was weird to me that the, all the nursing home deaths didn't spark conversation about end of life and what people wanted or didn't want. When, when I was, you know, running ICUs and working in an ICU, we, we never put 80-year-olds, we, we did everything we could not to put an 80-year-old on a ventilator because we knew if they, you know, did that, it was going to be a horrible existence afterwards if they made it at all. And so 
And, and the other piece of data that people should be aware of that for, I think it's for men, that the average life expectancy after admission to a nursing home, not for recovery from a hip fracture, nursing home care because you need institutional care. You are so far down the line that you can't wipe your ass, you can't feed yourself, you can't turn yourself. The average life expectancy is six months. And people should be really talking about whether they even want that and what they want as their end of life. It should be as dignified as life itself, but people can't even, can't even manage to address it. It's interesting. You know, it's interesting you bring this up. My father passed away. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And mm. one of the doctors, yeah. The, yeah. the oncologist, was very uh, adamant about giving him chemo, giving him chemo. My father was at an older age. He had diabetes, heart issues, and it, it, his cancer had progressed rapidly. He was just in fourth stage. And so I remember speaking to him about him, and I remember telling him, Dad, let's go to this other hospital. There's a New York City, there's a really great hospital for cancer. And let's see, you know, about mm. treatment there. And I remember he looked at me, he said, no, I choose how I die. Mm. I'm not going to mm. choose to die this way. For what? For a few more yeah. weeks, for a few more months yeah. where I'm going to be sick? And he chose. He said, no, that's yeah. not how I intend to go. And I respected that. And I agreed with that because, and thankfully, my whole family agreed with that, where none of us pushed him, please do this, do chemo, do this, to prolong his life in a much more painful way, in a much more horrific way, so that we could selfishly keep him here, which would have been worse. And so he didn't do a treatment, and he passed within two months of, of this conversation of him, his diagnosis. And although, you know, Dr. Drew was hard to lose him, I was also at peace in that I felt we did the right thing by him because I can't imagine having him mm -hmm. go through that, having him suffer through that, and then mm -hmm. lose him, then him just prolonging his death and just dying in a, a much more horrific, much more painful way. So I completely yeah. Yeah. get it. No, I, I've always had immense admiration for people that stand up and uh, and with with dig it's dignity is that, that I think I admire when people do these things. And it's also accepting realities on reality's terms, as stark as it is. It, it, it is often, you're right, it's often the family that drive uh, excessive care so they don't have to feel grief. And I, I understand not wanting to feel grief. I understand. It's a bad feeling. But you got to do what's right for the patient. And it's very admirable. The, the, only, reason, the only reason I can imagine... With, you know, stage four pancreatic cancer taking chemo is if you want to do it to help push the science forward for future sufferers. You know, if you felt like that was something I want to do is I can be a I could be a subject in cancer research, then okay, I understand that. But uh, I in fact, one of the I have an, I have a memory um, of a of very similar to your dad. I, I have a very powerful memory. When I was an intern, I admitted a pediatrician to the hospital. And he'd had a lot of medical problems, but he was a very joyous person. And he's a pediatrician, which is hard to do. I can't stand, you know, the kids suffering. I can't do that. I just can't do it. Um, but, but he was okay. And um, he'd come in with what's called painless jaundice, which is essentially a sign of pancreatic cancer typically because the, when the tumor develops in the head of the pancreas, it pushes on the bile, common bile duct and you get, you get yellow. The bile doesn't come out. And um, 
he said, you know, I've seen lots of people suffer through horrible things. Now it's my turn. And he just said it like, like, hey, I, I, it's my turn now. I, it's not like it wasn't coming. He was like 77 years old or so, if I remember right. I mean, he wasn't young, so he'd had a good life and a long life. And he's like, this is, this is how it goes. And I am here to tell you, we're going to make the diagnosis and I'll get the, they do kind of a thing called a Whipple's procedure. I don't know if he actually did that. Um, and then we're going to see where, you know, let, let it, the cards fall where they may. Um, he was just, I just remember his, you know, it's funny. I don't remember a lot of the words. I just remember his attitude was so positive and it was inspiring. Um, I'm guessing your dad was very similar. He was, you know, and you know, it's, everyone thinks it's like, oh, I'm going to be my best when everything's great. But when then things are not good, it's, it's appropriate and it's okay for me to fall apart. And it's, it's not that it's. You can look at what's happened the past two years. You can look at your most difficult situations or scary situations. And it's in your worst of times, in your worst of moments where you must be your very best. That is the true mm -hmm. definition of strength, of courage, not when everything's going okay. And I think there's also this narrative that, well, if I'm stressed out or things aren't great, I'm allowed to completely just behave however I want to behave, just be completely fear-based, cancel other people, insult other people, have no, no, no ability to govern myself or my emotions. But that's true mastery. That's true self-discipline, governing yourself and the choices we make. And you know, you made me think of another scenario. Earlier on when you introduced me, you mentioned that September 11th. On 9-11, when the first tower started collapsing, I happened to be there. And I got caught in the collapse of that tower. And I remember taking shelter and, and trying to hide. I didn't understand the tower was collapsing. I thought it was just maybe the roof or a, a portion of the tower. But I understood I needed to take shelter because I was right by the base and there's no way to outrun it. And as it started to come down, Dr. Drew, I remember realizing, oh boy, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't what I thought. I'm, I'm probably going to die. And in that moment, I, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to die. I don't have a choice about whether I'm going to die or not. That's not in my hands. But I do have a choice of how I'm going to die, how I'm going to face this moment. And in that moment, I chose. I said, I won't die afraid. I'm not going to panic. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to face my death head on. And I literally did. I kept my eyes open, I remember. And I said, I want to see my end. And I prayed. Just, just that happened to be my spiritual connection. I prayed. And I held on to that piece. And so it's in those moments where it's like, okay, maybe you don't have a choice in how something is going to end up, but you have a choice on how you face it. And I think that that's what's gotten lost here. How did you survive that? Where, where did you duck into? Where, where were you? Seems Honestly, unsurvivable if you were at the base. I did not I, there was a corner of where I was able to be by the what they call the financial buildings near the tower. And there was just a mm -hmm. this just crevice, and I was just able to sit there. And when the debris shot, it just shot over me. Honestly, it was just hit or miss. And I just happened to pick mm -hmm. a spot where the debris didn't land, and I happened to survive mm -hmm. it. But it's wow. it, something freeing, though, in being able to manage yourself and say it's okay, not this amped up phobia where oh my gosh, if this happens, oh my gosh, it's like yes, these things exist, and I think being able to live in the reality and the truth of what something is and then to face that truth that's empower 
empowering. And not only that, I would think that makes you a more mentally healthy and resilient human being. Oh, yeah. Uh, there, there's no doubt that uh, competency and uh, 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 techniques that make you not feel helpless in confusing situations, I mean, these are really powerful, powerful techniques. Again, that's why I liked about your book. I, I fear, though, I'm thinking of the words we've been using, you know, fearlessness, strength, what do we say, dignity, courage. Those all sound like toxic masculinity to me. And so we have we have diminished we have de, we have sort of denigrated some of these really important uh, human qualities that are, they're not specifically masculine or they they may be masculine but they're not they're not specifically male obviously you're a living example of that uh, we just I had a dog them. cat fight here <laughs> Go ahead, you love what? I love those words. I identify with those words. I never and yeah. I didn't grow up thinking oh those words are only for men. I grew up thinking those words are yeah. me. And so when toxic. you define, oh, why, why are they toxic? Why? Yeah, I don't, don't ask me. I, I, I think people are mistaking. I think, I think, you know, I think it's an interesting question because I think what, what they're doing, what people have done in this country is they've mistaken aggression, flat out aggression, yes. which is not com composure and all these things we're talking about. Uh, and they're throwing them all into this same quality that have traditionally been associated with certain kinds of masculinity. Yeah, aggression is a problem, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I think there's a difference between aggression and assertiveness. Bullying versus mm -hmm. being a person with strength. I worked along other special agents. I worked around military indi individuals in the military, special ops, uh, uh, special operators, very elite, strong people. They, they had all these qualities. And because I was fortunate to be around other strong individuals by proxy, I became stronger. And this is where the, your sphere of influence comes into play. Who is around you? Who do you associate with? Who do you communicate with? And if you're talking to other people who are terrified and fear-based, you're going to be those things. I think I, I, I don't like labeling things. I've never liked it, identifying with it's just those words, when I share them, that's who I really feel like as a human being. And I think you should choose the words that allow you to feel who you are and to be strong, to be resilient, to be to be able to manage your fears, to have courage and to be brave. Those are things to be celebrated, not diminished. Have you ever thought about doing some kind of a workshop, you know, where these people are exposed to these things and other and exposed to people, like you said, that are have had positive effect on you and your attitude. I feel like there's never been a greater need at the, this present moment. I think people are kind of aware. I think sort of Jordan Peterson has been filling some of that, but but I think it's something more explicit that maybe we should really talk about doing something for people that builds them back up from the morass we've been in. Yeah, it's, I agree with you. It's like, and I have done talks and workshops about confidence and, and, and different things, but it's examining yourself, examining the world around you. Why do I think this way? Why do I behave this way? Is this good for me? Even something as simple as uh, making decisions. Did you know individuals who make decisions or are more decisive are more likely to be confident in life? Decision-making, whereas makes sense. we are in an environment now where we're constantly checking other people's opinions and checking with other mm -hmm. people, 
and I think this way, can I say this? And mm-hmm. we're not we're not our own we're not the captains of our own ship. And maybe you are correct. It's like we're in an environment where you're almost being deterred to be the captain of your own ship, to have your own original, yeah. authentic sentiments. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I want to correct uh, somebody out there was calling you. Uh, do you have any kind of doctorate? They were asking this thing. Thank you for being the doctor. And it's like, maybe it's a f- secret service, law enforcement. I have a lot a, of knowledge. Do you have a doctorate? I do not. I actually thought about going in for one, okay. but I have a master's in forensic psychology. Yeah. So because I used to do interviews and interrogations, uh, the U.S. Secret Service sent me to get my master's. And what they wanted me to do is to understand from a clinical perspective the individual I was sitting across from because I did, I was part of a polygraph unit. And so we interviewed people who did very high level crimes or people came across my way that where law enforcement couldn't get confessions. So I would travel the Mm. country helping local police departments with their cases. I even did terrorism cases. And so one of the things that was taught was it's not the stuff you see in TV. Understand the person across from you. Do they have any mental health issues? Because a lot of criminal offenders do. So it was being able to identify those. So studying the DSM, it was the four. Now we're in the five, where it has all the psychiatric Mm -hmm. and personality disorders. Understanding that person, do they have any mental health issues? Do they meet any criteria? What is their perspective? Mm -hmm. How can I speak to them? So I think... As a result of all that and my practice, so to speak, in interviewing and speaking with people all those years, and even after I wrote my book, I found so many people writing in with, Evie, I have this problem. How do I assess this? Evie, I have this. And I remember thinking, I can't answer your your issue in a simple text, right? Because people are so different. Situations are so different. But I see this need and people at such a loss looking outside of themselves for someone to tell them right. what to do. Right. So, so, so you're keep keep going with that thinking. You, so, your your suggestion is people learn how to master and regulate their own emotions and tune into their internal resources. You also want to give people tools. So, something something as simple as teaching someone: don't go out and ask other people for permission for anything. Take maybe a week or two weeks if you're that person who's always indecisive. Stop shopping around for answers, make a choice and be okay with making the wrong choice. Again, we're in this such a fear-based environment where people are afraid to do or say the wrong thing. I'll bring it back to being a college professor. Dr. Drew, I'll ask my students questions in class and they are afraid to give me the wrong answer. And I tell them, this is your class. Give me the wrong answer. It's okay, participate. This is how you're gonna learn. Or if they answer me, Dr. Drew, they talk so softly, I can barely understand that. I have to tell them repeatedly, when you speak up, the person sitting right behind you cannot hear you because they are so afraid to speak. And if this is literally a constant problem I have in my class, share your thoughts intelligently. Don't insult anybody in the class. Always respect. It's okay to have opposing points of view, but if you're going to say something, speak, own your voice. So... I think a lot of it is giving people simple tools and strategies and helping them break habits, bad habits that lead to this type of behavior that lead to that you, without you realizing you're feeding the beast. Right. Yeah. That brings you in this fear based. Yeah. I can't make my own decisions. I'm afraid of everything. I need to be a belong to a group. I can't fail. I can't make a mistake type of mindset. 
Well, what, but I, I think what I'm super attracted to in, in the solutions you're offering is they are very pragmatic. And, you know, they're very, you, anybody can do it and you just have to do it. And, it, and they're, it's kind of like a, a cognitive behavioral therapy of sorts uh, for, for the social circumstance of our moment. I'll tell you what, I have to take a quick break here. Uh, the book is Becoming Bulletproof. I suggest you get it right now. Uh, please do. You see why I like that book. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Evie. We'll take a couple calls. And uh, I want to hear if Caleb and Susan have any questions. Something kind of funny happened. During the... During when the, she was... It's my, my mic on. Um, it's my time. <laughs> yes, she, it's your time. No, it's my mic on. <laughs> when she was talking about surviving the World Trade Center, mm -hmm. my computer just went went dead. Mm. Like, just dead. I was, like, trying to, to get it to come back because I wanted to see... You know what people were you know saying during that time on restream and i was like i something spiritual to shut my computer down but i am really happy that you lived i i find that to be fascinating <laughs> yes and we are happy that you lived. how you how you approach death i think you know it's it's incredible to be able to have that ability and not you know and maybe that's what saved you, Speak, you know? speaking of all right you're having your wits about it you. shut my computer down i don't know what happened <laughs> my ghosts are here Com speaking of composure, uh, people want to know your opinion about Will Smith and uh, and uh, Rock. And I want uh, some dirt on um, the Ukraine. Okay, so we'll, hold on. So hold on, hold on, hold on. So we'll take a little break and we'll be back for all of that. So don't go away. Let me take a minute to tell you about Blue Mics. Over the two years we've been working with our friends at Blue Mics, the world has completely adapted to working and meeting virtually. So whether you know it or not, you probably spent a lot of time in front of a microphone. I'll take it from someone who has spent probably half my life on a microphone. Sounding good is extremely important. And because of blue mics, I have never sounded better. But a good mic isn't just for broadcasting. Quality audio makes a big impact on whomever is listening on the other end, from coworkers to clients to friends. Clear sound can make all the difference. Thanks to blue mics, you don't need complicated or expensive equipment to get professional results. For simple plug-and-play setups, try Blue Mic's Yeti series. It plugs right into your USB port on your computer. Need something more robust? Blue's got an entire line of professional XLR mics, like the Mouse or the Blueberry we use here in our studio, as well as the more compact Encore 300. I love it for clear quality sound when we travel. Bottom line, there is no excuse to be the one on the conference call who sounds like you're in a tunnel or underwater. I cannot say enough about Blue Mics. And once you try one, you will never go back. To take your audio to the next level, just go to drdrew.com slash blue. That is drdrew.com slash B-L-U-E. And we are back. It is Becoming Bulletproof. Go get that book right now. And before the break, um, I was asking every a bunch of things on everybody's mind. So let's start at the top. Uh, where was security when Will Smith went up on stage and smacked Chris Rock? Why, why didn't they prevent him from going on the stage? And why didn't they grab him before he even got off the stage? I th so it's interesting because I've actually gone to events like that, high-profile events when with presidents or first ladies. There's been times where I've gone to different award ceremonies. Security is typically there for outside public. Uh, not for the celebrities. They're there to protect the celebrities. So truly, I think they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if it was a skit. Mm. Um, it's not, they're not there to protect one celebrity from another celebrity. They're protecting I see. Interesting. the celebrities. I get it. So I think I, Rudy, I get it. They have no idea. They're looking for the random person yeah. who's going to come out from behind, 
who's going to run up on stage, they're not expecting another celebrity to get up on stage to to do what Will Smith did. And, and I I thought Chris Rock handled it in a very dignified way, a very unclear situation. There's a lot of things he could have done. Um, oh, now uh, Caleb is telling me, he's just flashed up on my screen, that the Academy says they asked Will Smith to leave, but he refused. <laughs> oh, God. So that's interesting. Of course. Um, but uh, I'm just curious, you know, we're talking about fear and composure, how you felt about Chris Rock's reaction to it all. I thought he actually had really good self-governance because when you are attacked, mm -hmm. you're instinctually, you want to fight back. Instinctually, you want right. to move your hands up. And I found it really interesting that he didn't even, he didn't even try to push Will Smith off of him or anything. He actually stood yeah. there and he took it. That's a lot of composure and just the, the, his ability to think through a very stressful moment, especially on stage, to think, don't lift your hands, don't hit back, don't do anything. That says a lot about his ability to govern his emotions. It's probably a very high level of emotional intelligence to do that. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I could have. I, I would have <laughs> I would have at least lunged back and I might have thought better of it after to protect I did. Yourself. Or, or said, hey, could somebody take this guy out? Like, yeah, right. I, I, we can't go on until you get this guy out of here. I don't feel safe. I think he was just <laughs> kind of shocked by it. And also like he was thought it was kind of funny in a way. Who? Maybe who Chris did? Yeah. Like, oh, no, no, was no, that no. supposed to be no, funny? No, 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 or is no. that real? Did oh, you no. kind of let me? Mm. I mean, I don't think but it looked like a punch. Right. I think he started laughing. He managed a lot of people when mm -hmm. they're stressed yeah, out maybe and that's what i think that was susan yeah. he was nervous it was a nervous laughter it's his way of releasing like his his stress in that scenario yes i agree i i, I completely agree i mean chris rock has probably had people lunge at him before well that's what i thought evie was going to go which is next <laughs> if if she's always admonished me like be on the defensive all the time if somebody heads towards the stage be ready be ready for the for the assault instead of what chris did was sort of leaned in like what do you got and um that i thought you would have something to say about that were, were i to be the one to have done so i suspect you might have had some notes for me what was that having a lot of paranormal experiences over here yeah no it's it was it, it was kind of like it was kind of like is this is this for real like why isn't he responding i think that's why people thought it was fake Abby, go ahead i think that but i also think he's you know susan look at it i'm on stage I'm, and he's also he's facing the crowd so he sees also yeah. think about what he's seeing he's seeing how many thousands yeah. of people in an audience so I think he's computing all those things as well. So probably, yes, there's a mm -hmm. level of shock, but I think he's also seeing the reality of where he is and he's thinking, have self-control, don't move. Because even just instinctually, his body doesn't react. Like that's composure where typically you want to put your hands up or do something. And yeah, he, or touch your face, demeanor, just got hit in the face. Touch your face. His demeanor though probably helped not escalate the situation further because had he hit back or yeah. done something, they probably would have had a physical altercation on stage. So by him oh, not yeah. doing anything, oh, yeah. it really de-escalated. The whole front row. Oh, Who yeah. knows what oh, would yeah. happen? And, Jada and would have sure, been there too. And I'm sure he was thinking, also, I have a job to do here. Let's get this going. No, he, but, he really handled himself now, well. Now, Susan, you also had a question about uh, FBI and CIA misinformation. What, what did you exactly have in mind? A misinformation? Oh, no. I was just curious what her take is on like the fear that's coming out of this war in 
the Ukraine and how we're how we're dealing with Russia and you know how our kids can um, you know sort of understand it more fully. You know, we all live through uh, nuclear threats from you know early age. I don't want to say how old I was, but. Um, <laughs> When we had the problem before, but, but, you know, how, like, what's really happening? Like, how are we, are we supposed to be like building bunkers or are we, or should we just, you know, face the light? Like I told my kids, like, if, if, if a bomb's coming, I'm going to be the first one out there. I'm just going to get it over with. Cause I don't want to suffer and see what happens afterwards. But, um, but what is it that we should, she's going to choose how to die guys. That's all I did. Yeah. Caleb's I was laughing at you. I would be saying, okay. I'd be like, out <laughs> there. Yeah. I, yeah. See, but, see. um, sure. Yeah, Cause I find it, I find I, yeah, I'm, I'm more spiritual that way, but I also don't, I know that I wouldn't want to watch my family <laughs> die slowly. It would be terrible, but, um, and that's the selfish reason to do it. But, um, I don't know. I just think like with, impending world war possibly um how like from your point of view like is there stuff that we just don't know and how should we handle it and should we really be worried you know because the media is not gonna I don't, I don't believe anything they say so so the first thing is media is going to escalate they want drama they want to tell a story they don't want you to change the channel and again we're being inundated yeah. by the story um conflicts happen happens all the time don't forget we just left afghanistan after being there for how many years because of 9-11. And that was extremely catastrophic. So these scenarios are always happening. But again, they are further escalated by the repeat narrative of being on the news, being through social. Now, if you look at strategically national security, obviously they're dealing with you know, Russia, and I was around for the Soviet Union as well, Susan. So you're dealing with Russia and you can see that the US is being as careful as possible to avoid having conflict, which is why they're not putting troops. They're choosing how to strategically mm -hmm. handle the situation. And you're seeing these economic mm -hmm. economics instead. So you can tell they are doing their best to avoid this. But also mm -hmm. there are other things they do. They're probably trying to, through insurgents or different ways, insurgents is not the correct word, by planting people and propaganda into a different helping create a different narrative in Russia, letting people know. In fact, I was reading up right before we went on, Dr. Drew, about how the U.S. is leaking intelligence that it intercepted, okay, from the Kremlin mm. of I saw Putin that. being afraid to tell Putin the truth about what's happening. And this is where when you have dictators of very fear-based regimes where your own people will just agree with you or tell you yes, and they won't tell you the truth. And so what the U.S. had hoped by leaking this information is for Putin to hear, hey, your plan is actually not going as you think, and what your cocoon of people are telling you is wrong. So they're really hoping that he will self-correct or self-shift. Now he may, because he's really backed into a corner, if you look at it from a military standpoint. And also there's two things to consider, Susan. The United States has something called hard, hard power, soft power. Hard power is the military, our weapons, our, our, you know, um, our resources, right? That's hard power. Mm -hmm. Soft power is our influence over the world, which is how people see us. And what, it, what we're doing right now is using our soft power, okay, 
to help mitigate the situation, to help deal with it. So our influence and the allies that we have throughout the world, the majority of the world is aligning with, you know, the West, aligning with the Ukraine. Now, I think it's just they're taking it step by step. Again, saying World War Three is a great way to get people to tune into the channel, you know, to to, mm-hmm. to be afraid. This is where. Yeah. I think this is where people just have to use logic. It's a you have to stop. You have to disengage. Read up on the news and then go live your life. Because you right. stressing yeah, more yeah. about it is not going to change it. And the government, there's so many layers yeah. and individuals. It's not just the president who's making choices. There's cabinet members. There's military personnel. There's intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. Everybody is collectively working together to try to mitigate and de-escalate the situation. So I want to dial the conversation back a little bit more to the psychological negativity and the in and out groups. And let me just mention: there's a famous uh, social psychology experiment called the Robber Ca- Robber's Cave, where groups of randomly selected matched uh, young boys were sort of set into two camps, and they immediately became warring camps. So read about the Robber's Cave, just Wikipedia. And uh, uh, do you? I just want your. I spent a lot of time asking people this question. I'm just curious if you have a, a thought on this, and I've sort of asked you as much already. But do you feel positive about the direction we're going? Are you hopeful? Or do you see the way out yet? Or are you just still kind of worried we're stuck like this for a while? I don't think we're stuck. I think that it's going to get resolved. I just because it's not just the U.S. doing this alone. You have so many people, mm-hmm. so many organizations, even private companies pulling out of Russia. You're really seeing this true collective effort. And it's kind of amazing to see how people who are non-military, even Elon Musk moving his satellites to help the Ukrainians. So I see this in a much more positive light. But again, media, social media, it's not going to paint it that way because it's not as interesting right. to watch. And, you know, I my, gra- my grandmother left um, Asia. She was, even though my grandmother was... Uh, Greek, she, her, excuse me, her family um, left as refugees and they went to the Ukraine. My grandmother was born in the Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yes. So even when I saw that, you know, I've always had a very soft place in my heart because that was my grandmother's place of birth. It's the place that they welcomed Mm -hmm. my my great-grandparents as refugees. But you really, I think people also have to have faith and be more positive as to we're seeing this collective effort and if you want to help, think about ways that you can help the collective effort rather than sitting there and playing this doomsday narrative. Everybody is working strategically well, to try to prevent it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And and then how about our in-group, out-group nonsense, the, 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 all the, the delusional thinking and the consternation amongst ourselves is, are we going to find our way, all the stuff we were talking about 30 minutes ago, are we going to find our way? We have to find a way out of that. The question is, do you do you feel optimistic and do you see a light ahead? I don't know yet. I think something has to happen mm-hmm. to make people's collective mindset shift. Mm-hmm. There is such a strong group think or this collective mindset that needs to change and something has to shift it. And I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember pre, I keep going on 9-11, but I remember pre-9-11, the country was not as unified. 9-11 happened and it unified mm-hmm. everybody. So mm-hmm. I don't know what it's going to take for people to shift or change. Um, mm. But I do think that we are in this, this soup, right? This mental soup 
Um, yes, that that's we, what it is. Get, am I, I'm trying to describe it, right? It's like a tangible. No, I feel thing. like it's it's a yeah. It's a, it's it feels like a like a molasses. It feels like this this uh, this cloud. This, you know, you, you can talk about a soup, a cloud, molasses. It it all it feels like it's around all the time, and it's uh, extremely disturbing to me. And I and I do. I do have been feeling the same way, like what's going to get us out of this? What, what's it going to take? I, I want to talk to you more about doing some sort of workshops or something, because that I feel like at least we would be doing something active to try to, back to your point of not feeling helpless and doing things actively, I feel like we might be doing something uh, active. Let's um, let's take a call and see. Uh, Josh, I bet you have some interesting questions about what uh, we've been discussing. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Drew. Josh. Um, boy, this is, uh, we've had an interesting week in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I looked at the robber's cave on Wikipedia while, you, while I was just sitting here mm -hmm. and, uh, it makes me think of Viktor Frankl and Viktor Frankl in the introduction to just in the first couple pages of his book, um, the search for meaning, man's search for meaning. Mm -hmm. He talks about the Holocaust and he talks about how a portion of the Jews were even worse to the Jews who were being slaughtered in the camps. And, you know, Jews on Jews, Jews turning against Jews in, in the Holocaust. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we're in a Holocaust. I'm not saying it's anything remotely like that. But I, But my mind went there because I feel like when I saw Will Smith and I saw Chris Rock, I know we have a problem with racism in this country. And I know the academy is doing its best to please everybody. And um, what I saw was some in-group fighting because they're both black men. And they should be friends, frankly. And if we look at it like that, what Viktor Frankl, his whole thing, and he started a, a, an entire psychotherapy called logotherapy. Mm -hmm which was a search for meaning. Mm -hmm. So in times of stress and infighting, it's very, very difficult to find meaning. And I bet that in those camps, it was very difficult to find meaning. And I don't want to say that I have any idea what it was like there. Yeah, you, you read, the, read at least the first 100 pages of the book. He talks about it. And uh, we'll discuss it amongst ourselves here, Josh. Thanks for the for throwing that, lobbing that grenade in the middle of this. So he, but but he, but I I think we would both agree. We've been talking about a search for meaning, meaning making, being purposeful lives, not fear based, not you know, and, and meaning based on internal experiences that are genuine, and then you know, brought into reality. His thing was. Um, you know, when there's no hope, you can still find beauty and meaning. And he would, he would, he was a physician, so he would sort of attend to people and he would look after things and he would just do stuff automatically. One of the really interesting uh, statements he made is when he, I forget if it was in an interview or maybe at the end of the book or something, he's Victor Frankel we're talking about here, said he was looking at all those classic pictures of the, I think it was primarily men in the striped suits sitting on the essentially the uh, sort of wooden bunk beds. There's a whole bunch of them. They look all starved and look miserable. He he you know he watched people react to that, 
and said, how do you know? How do you know? This might be a good day for them. They might have gotten an extra serving of soup on that day. This could be a, a, a joyous moment for them in that misery. You have no idea how they find these, or just the fact that they were all together. It might have been a cold day, and they were finding heat with each other and getting great relief from that moment. Again, it's finding life's tiny joys, I guess, is really what it's about, uh, and, and meaning. I agree with that. I'll let you talk, Abby. You know, it's interesting. I actually mentioned Viktor Frankl in my book, Becoming Bulletproof. And mm -hmm. I, I mentioned mm -hmm. him in the section where it's about, where he talks about finding meaning. And one of the mm -hmm. things that he learned and what is that because he was able to find meaning in the tragedy, he was able to heal and he was actually able to survive it, to survive the events. Mm -hmm. And so when you can find meaning in things and not just completely just, you know, really see the hopelessness in it, in things, which is really what destroys you, what takes you down. And so if you can find meaning in tragedy, if you can mind, find meaning in yeah. difficult situations, that helps guide you in a different direction. And so this kind of goes back yeah. to what we're talking about and where if everything is hopeless, if everything is negative, if everything is fear-based, and maybe even, you know, you can see how even the energy in the world, so to speak, and maybe I'm kind of shifting more into Susan's territory here, you could even argue mm -hmm. that just behavior is a bit more erratic, a bit more off. Even, you know, we brought up Will Smith. Is, is it what's collectively happening in the world and the way people are behaving and told that it's okay to behave? It's okay for you to lose it. It's mm -hmm. okay for you to be this. That's right. Look what's happening That's in right. the world. You're a that, okay. And it's the opposite That's right. of meaning and finding strength. I, I completely agree with you. And I, and I do think it is, he's got a lot of stuff going on in his life, I'm sure. And as I mentioned people when I've talked about this particular event, I said, look, what when I've treated celebrities and they did something publicly, um, what's really going on is always way, 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 way worse than you can imagine. <laughs> it's a lot going on. Um, you know, it's funny. We were watching, Susan and I watched the um, uh, the Tammy Faye Baker thing that uh, Jessica uh, Chastain, Chastain, that her name? Susan, help me with this. I, Jessica yeah, Chastain. I guess. That's what she got That's the Academy Award for. What's that, Chastain? Yeah. And she, uh, there's a scene where Tammy Faye Paper, Baker gets strung out on pills and takes a whole bunch of pills and is on television and starts wandering around and eventually starts kind of talking to herself about the scenery and then lies down in the, essentially the fake beach where they're having this scene on television and just lies there. And the Jim Baker's like, come on now, get up. Here we go. Aren't you funny? She's and, uh, and she was in serious trouble and of course it all gets glossed over in, in the press you know like, oh yeah, yeah. she's behaving strangely something's going on but don't worry about it it'll be fine you know when people behave strangely in front of cameras <laughs> there's a really powerful reason underlying that and don't uh, don't think otherwise there's something really going on there and i, I worry about i him. mean i worry about him i found myself drinking more during the pandemic. Mm. And, you know, everybody, once in a while, you might just have a little one too many. Mm -hmm. And then you're in trouble. <laughs> Do you think he was drinking that night? I, oh, I yeah. His eyes were all red and okay. kind of sweet. Yeah, he was doing something. I don't okay. know. Maybe smoking pot. I'm not sure we what Will Smith's thing know. is, but... So you think <clears> he didn't look sober to me. Well, substances, you know, figure prominently into problematic behaviors they just do we don't behave normally when we're on substances are you addressing that kind of stuff with your students you know it's interesting so one of the uh, drug use is actually up for younger people mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um 
vaping and marijuana use is uh, very high. We're seeing very large um, records, more so than we've seen before. And so those substances are very predominant. Now, how it impacts behavior, you know better than I do, Dr. Drew. But I, I'm with you with, oh, yeah. with the Will Smith scenario. There's deeper things there. It's not just a simple joke. You know, there, there's always layers upon layers of things going on within people yeah. to bring out certain behavior, to bring it out in a public yeah. way, to not be able to control your your, your impulsivities, right? And, and so there's definitely depth there uh, to that. But I do think yeah. you're, you're uh, correct. People don't want to deal with their issues and they look to other ways to, and I see it in my younger students, um, marijuana use is up, vaping is up and vaping, you know, you can, you know, vape different things as well. So that's uh, mm-hmm. one thing that we are seeing a shift according to the, um, it's called monitor, monitoring the future st- uh, surveys that they've done on mm-hmm. students. And that's kind of hit mm-hmm. really higher levels in drug use uh, amongst youth than before. And the the disturbing phenomenon I see as it pertains to these trends that you're saying is rather than looking at them as mental health issues, people gloss them over with ideologies like, well, that's your way of looking at things. I literally had a conversation with millennials where I was talking about some behavior. I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years, 40 years practicing medicine, got, you know, system professorships and things. And I know what I'm talking about. And I, and I made an observation and they go, well, Jill Smith has a has a certificate on human sexuality, and here's what she says. And I thought, oh my God, people people I know expertise has been under uh, assault lately, but people don't even know what they're talking about. They don't understand what a doctor is, what a what a I, they just don't understand it. And uh, that that also concerned me because then you can you can call anything anything. Then nothing's real, nothing's grounded in reality, and you can gloss over anything with just a bunch of ideological gibberish. Yeah, who is this person? Why should I listen to them? Two most important questions. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So tell me why they should listen to you. What is your? We haven't really gone over all your different experiences, other than uh, NYPD, nine uh, eleven. Uh, did you actually spring into action in nine eleven? Did you have to go do stuff? Well, you just happened to be I down there, kind of thing. No, our offices were in Seven World Trade Center, and so mm. that's where I work. When they were, you know, in in that at that time, they were evacuating people from our building, and I myself chose to stay with a small group of agents. Um, some others did evacuate, other colleagues evacuated. And so I think that that's where you see like character, you know, the character of people. And I think we, sometimes we group people into gender and to race. And it's sometimes too, it's just, I feel like more, it's just the character of the human being and who, how they choose to govern themselves in their lives. But going back to your original question, I chose to stay and people were dying. And so myself and the small group I was with, we we're like, we're going to try to do our best to, to help. And we just ended up getting caught in the both plane, uh, uh, both plane attacks and then the collapse. And we had actually set up a triage nearby to try to help people, um, help the wounded. And a lot of people were in shock and panic. And I remember even trying to communicate with people, you could see people could not process information. And so it came to the point where we would physically, those people that were not injured, that did not need ambulances, um, we would just literally 
grab them, turn them, and just point them towards the water, which was the Hudson River. And we just say, you see the water? Mm. Walk that way. Just do that. Because you could see that they could not process more. And so we'd physically just turn Mm. them and just go walk that way. Just go towards the water. And it's it's also exposure if you're not, you know, look, I don't want to say that it was a very traumatic, very high stress situation. So for a lot of people, they, they, they could not adapt to the chaos of that moment. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, it, I, I'm so curious on what, what you did. Did you just set up a triage tent or how do you do that in the middle of this un, you know, this, uh, are you, you're not even sure what's happening. You're not sure if you're under attack. You, you don't know what's going on. And, and I'm sure there are people injured all over the place. H- how do you determine who the caretakers are, where they should, I, I can't imagine how you did that. We, you know, and it was trying to, it was very chaotic. So I know when you watch it now on TV, it looks very clear. At the moment, it was chaotic. When the first plane hit, I actually thought it was like an electrical fire. I remember thinking, oh, well, I wonder what happened. And then when we went down, we grabbed our medical kits to go down to walk towards the second tower, excuse me, to the burning tower to help. Then the second plane came as we're kind of in, in the walkway by the base of the tower. So the second plane comes, everything shoots out. We take cover. So as not to get hurt because just debris was just coming down everywhere. And we're not talking about small bits of debris. We're talking about chunks, something that's like the size of cars. And so that blocked actually, after you, you survived that, um, because we had to take mm. cover, we, um, our, our entrance was blocked. And so we're like, all right, we need to go back the other way. And actually, as I was trying to go back the other way, we had we ran into police. They were dealing with an individual who they suspected might have been involved in attacks. We actually enacted an oh arrest gosh. while the arrest was going on. Then after we assisted in the arrest, we went to set up a triage. And that's where, and you don't see this anymore. People were jumping. And I remember, too, we were trying yeah. to set up our treatment walk without getting hit by someone because people were jumping and then you risk being killed by a jumper. So we yeah. found the spot triage and what we were doing is ambulance just just ambulances just started pulling up and whoever needed physical care we threw in the ambulance like people that were truly injured most most people drew were in shock because the debris and the calamity of what was happening was so severe that you either Mm. you either walked away or you didn't like if something hit you Mm. you were down and so the injuries Mm. weren't that many you would have thought they were, but they weren't. We had more people kind of in a state of shock and their inability to to understand what to do and a lot of debris in people's faces and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. as we were there doing the a triage, we set it up too close to the tower, not knowing. And then that's when the first tower oh. began to come out. Um, I see. And so, yes. And so, but this is, it's like in those moments in life, it's like you choose when the world's falling apart or when things are chaotic, you choose what to do, how to help. And if we bring it back to you, the Ukraine, you could see something as simple as, you know, chefs or, or cooks going over to prepare food to help. And so you choose mm-hmm. what path you want. Do you want to be someone who actively does something to help shift things in some way or to put positivity or do you become the opposite? I don't know. I, I think, think we, we ought to leave this and help others. Say that other again. We've lost. We've we've lost. No, no, no. I disagree because 
when people are of service, they immediately realize its importance. They, they immediately get a sense of why it's important. And I, I think, unfortunately, that people don't maybe don't understand that it's one person helping another person. It, they think, oh, I'll be, I'll form a charity and we'll get rid of the whatever. You know, we'll we'll have some giant, um, we'll whatever, some some big problem. We we're going to correct it. Um, that's not the same kind of reward we're talking about. We're talking about you with a skill set and a wisdom and a, and a desire helping another person. Now, not only just that other person, but it's this one-on-one -on -one exchange that really creates that purpose. I would be running as fast as I could to get out of that well, building. Evie, you are a strong woman. <laughs> and the fact that you don't have, you know, PTSD. horrible PTSD yeah. and you can't talk about it publicly. I mean, a lot of people, we've, we've wanted to interview people that were in the World Trade Center too. And they're like, I can't talk about it because it's just too it's just too big for me. But, but she didn't experience the helplessness. She, it, yeah, must yeah. have moments of it, I'm sure. But yeah, but not, not everybody's the, able to do that. I it's know. just, well, it's incredible. You know what it is? Training and... Do you know what also helped me, Dr. Drew? And you'll understand this. After it happened, um, I chose to go back and volunteer and help in the search and rescue and in the cleanup efforts. And so mm -hmm. I put... I, because I volunteered and I found meaning going back to Viktor Frankl and all that negativity and all that chaos, I volunteered. And I remember my supervisors were like, no, you can't go back. I said, yes, I'm totally fine to go back. And I went back and I stayed and I worked for weeks. I had 12 hour shifts. I won't forget. And because I found meaning in that tragedy and I was able to give, that was my, ther that was my therapy. That yeah, is what helped me. I, I get it. it. It's again, it's again, Con, not controlling so much as not being helpless, not not being powerless is literally what it is. Having having some influence on on what that's was why happening. you lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God said she better stick around. <laughs> we need her for a little further. We're gonna shut down Susan's computer. You probably uh, lost a couple friends are trying to talk to you through my computer. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, Evie, I I miss you. It's so great to touch base with you again. I I, I hope people take inspiration away from this conversation uh there you are with uh michelle obama yes is that you yes yes that's awesome I can, fantastic yes. and you 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 served three presidents right i started under the clinton administration so mm -hmm. um so clinton was president then bush jr and then with the obamas i was mm -hmm. physically in the white house with them on a full-time basis but when you're an agent you help protect even the former president so ford Bush Senior, you play a role in all their protection. You, you you'll you'll rotate through to assist in everything. Um, but with the with one president, um, at, at one point they do make you stay with one president on a twenty four hour basis. And for me, that was President uh, Barack Obama and, and First Lady Michelle Obama. And there's a great picture of Evie. I don't know. If, I'm probably Caleb. I don't think you can find this, but she's in this huge duster coat walking behind michelle obama and there's an uzi in the duster in the coat right you know the picture i'm talking about my mp5 my mp5 probably my mp5 which is like That's what awesome. it's an assault rifle or something right it's some sort of automatic weapon i'm sure <laughs> semi-automatic or automatic they had both capabilities for us but yes yes wow all right. Well, listen, um, let's do some more stuff. Amazing. If we can help you in any way, let us know. Uh, Caleb, you have any questions for her before I let her go? I know you're, uh, you've been enraptured with all this. I mean, this is just, I'm, I'm just 
enthralled. This is amazing. I, I love hearing about all of this stuff. And it's, I mean, I've been looking up pictures of all of the work that you've done <laughs> while we're doing, trying to put <laughs> some more onto the show. I'm actually, I, had, I am kind of curious. I do have a question if you have a second. Um, yeah. I, so one of my, my, I guess it's one of my biggest fears whenever I used to go on Drew's show on his TV show is that something like I would hit my toe or a spider would fall out of the ceiling and then I would suddenly yell out one of those words that are banned from television, but that never actually happened because uh, because I uh, I guess you compartmentalize certain words that you say at all other times away into a different part of your brain. I never messed up, never did it. But so as someone who you, you definitely know some of these national security secrets and stuff, is there a technique? How do you keep yourself from ever accidentally blurting out something that you know that you shouldn't? Self-awareness. Like you don't have to, when you think it, you don't have to say it. You have to pause and think. Mm -hmm. But I thought also think it's habit because even as an agent, I, I had to think through what I was saying to people. You're dealing with the public. You have to be thoughtful with your words. When I was in the interview room, I had to be very mindful about what I was saying to either a victim or an offender. I could say the wrong thing and the whole thing could get ruined. So one thing that I learned to slow down and to process things rather to be more responsive than reactive. And I actually think too, that's a, a habit you can learn and you can do it in small mm. moments. Like if you just, if, if you incorporate these habits in lifestyle, it's, I'll tell you this, Caleb, it's not the big things we do. It's the small habits that we fold into our daily lives that help us manage ourselves and kind of put the version of ourselves that we want out there. Mm -hmm. And I think for you, you were I so familiar and aware that you were on set. That's probably why it didn't happen. You had a lot of self-awareness of your environment and that's something you thought about. But, I'd like to but Caleb, I can introduce you to someone who not only blurts stuff out on television, you, what happens is you blurt out on TV and then people run for the dump button. The yeah. person I'd like to you, introduce <laughs> you to, after the dump button, button gets it gets punched, she goes, what? Oh, oh shit, I said fuck? Because <laughs> it's already meet Susan Pinsky. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's already, the dump is resetting and she goes, what, did I say fuck? <laughs> it's like, oh. okay, well, let me introduce you I to that person. I would never make it in television. <laughs> so, uh, I, could, I just, I was Whoa. always afraid I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I'm like, give me a dump so, button so, so I can dump like, myself. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's we'll, we'll tell you a few stories that oh, Susan. You know I some of some of my funniest, most out, most unbelievable moments have been with Susan in that that mode where she says stuff. We dump it, and she goes, "What, huh? Did I say blah?" Or just comes right back with the. <laughs> I was traumatized, thing. Drew. I was I know, traumatized, I I, and then he look, double traumatized me by yelling at me for saying it, it a bad was, word. I, I think it's some of the greatest moments I've ever been a part of. Don't get me wrong; I think it's hysterical. People love it, and watching FCC all the radio people freak out. Yeah, we had well, one. We had one with Sam be, Rubin on KTLA to fair, one time. To be fair, I was I was assaulted sexually by a guy in a. A car next to me on the, on the freeway, freeway who chased me yeah. and he exposed himself and I was panicked and I got home and not many people get to go right on the radio when they're <laughs> coming off the freeway and they don't know what just right. happened. Right. 
and I used a few words, and I didn't, you know, she, because I'm not. She said, she I don't said, do, do radio. What she said was, and I looked over, and there's big effing C, not with the full word. <laughs> I didn't say effing. I didn't say effing. And the, and the, you're, the first you're time you did, the first time you did, because that got dumped, and, oh. and then you went what, and then you went, I will. I said, didn't expect no, to I see said, a giant. No, C I said. There. You said you can't say that on the radio, and I said I do not give a shit. And then the baby heard me. Yeah, no, but somebody literally, opened my door. and I was coming back from from when you were on you were on HLN, so I was just yeah. coming back from the station there, and yeah. and um, you know it just it threw me, and I honestly I am not good with I'm not able to I thought it was fantastic. holding things in unless fantastic. I really yeah, the viewers love made picture. Caleb never. Caleb will never worry about this again. You understand, right. Caleb? You, right. You've actually you've, you've assuaged Caleb's anxiety with all this. Oh, I had to go on the TV the next day on KBC and explain it. We we had a big benefit, and I had to go there and sell tickets KTLA. to our KTLA. And uh, of course, the first thing they mentioned was, "Oh, we heard you. Something happened to you on the freeway last night." And I was like. Oh my God. So I had to explain it and I, I changed it. I didn't use any words. I said, I was just driving down the freeway and I looked over and do yo yo yoing. She goes, do yo yo yoing. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, Sam. Anyway, we're here to promote this charity. It, it was a lot. I didn't use any expletives. And that was I live on TV. I learned. So I. Do yo yoing. I was like, <laughs> that was my favorite television moment they of all time. They wanted me to tell the story. It was How fantastic. Do you say it? it was fantastic. Oh my God, it was terrible. They chased me, and then then Drew yelled at me because I didn't call the police while I was driving eighty miles an hour down well, the freeway. Have, what Evie Ev, coach Evie coach you up? What should she have done? This guy was really uh, pushing up behind her uh, with his vehicle in a large <laughs> truck, pulling alongside and exposing himself. What 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 should somebody do in that situation? All right, so you can get his license plates. That would be the first thing. I Anything couldn't because he wouldn't him. let me get behind him. He wouldn't she let you. Get could you look him, in so she couldn't get behind him. No. Because of the front. Oh, no. California, sometimes you only have one. Okay. The other thing is you can just go give him the finger. Because honestly, even if you report him in those situations <laughs> like that, sadly, police aren't going to do much. So you it can does, give him the finger. Well, that's. I didn't want to call the police and say hi. It's Susan Pinsky. I just saw this and this on the freeway and have them laugh. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, they're not. I mean, I what are they, they gonna do? He was he. He's if you gone, have like you know? the license plates, they could they could pull him up because he also yeah. here's the thing. He also might be a repeat offender. It might be so. Hey, we're familiar with of this person. There's cameras in the yeah. area. They could pull the cameras. Now it's whether or not they're willing to put their resources in it. And that's the thing, because there's yeah. so many things going on. For them, that might be a little bit low on the on the rank of things. I did try to slow down to get his license plate, and I couldn't do it because he just slowed down behind me. He didn't want me to see I'm it. I'm thinking so. of all these things I, I want to ask you. How, how how do you feel things are going with the NYPD now? Is things getting better with Eric Smith? Oh, with... I mean, NYPD is, look, it's a very diverse police department to begin with. They, it's a, it's mm -hmm, one of the mm -hmm. largest police departments. It's the most advanced. They do their best. I mean, crime is definitely um, shifting here in New York City. We're seeing a lot more incidents. And mm -hmm. it's kind of getting the, not just the police, but also getting the court systems to the district attorneys to work in harmony. You know, and this is Got where it. it's like, do you prosecute, do you not prosecute? Do you, if you're allowing people to be released on their own recognizance when it comes to bail, then you'll see a lot more reoffenders. 
So this is where you're seeing this back and forth tug of war, and it's 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 two it's it's a crime control perspective, war versus a rehabilitation do you know a process where it's like crime control is we want to do everything we can to punish crime to deter it so people don't reoffend, and then there's another school of thought criminal justice system shouldn't be as involved we should rehabilitate people be more empathetic to people but then that also shifts things as well and so this is where you're trying to find harmony between these two worlds i think it's going to take a minute i also think it's going to take for people to be so sick of crime where it has to come from the yeah. public truly it has to come from the yeah. public and, and do do they know it's very hard to tell when somebody is someone you can rehabilitate i mean if it's a heroin addict yeah we can do something about that but if it's a personality problem or, or you know criminality it, it's a much different phenomenon to rehabilitate is, is somebody have a plan for that no i don't think they do i think that mm. that you also have so. a lot of people with mental health issues in the prison system or in the jail system i think it's I know. in the, in the it is it's it, it depends nypd police departments they just know control crime right district yeah. attorneys prosecute yeah. they choose whether or not they prosecute but it's also yeah. if nypd is arresting and the district attorneys aren't prosecuting then it's it, it's everybody has to be in harmony and i think it's going to take yeah. a bit of time LA is having the same problems california it's having a lot of the same similar issues out there i know i interviewed gascon our da here and he said oh, i'm going to get all the data together and then i'll reassess and the data has gone very not his way very poor and uh, magically he's not interested in data anymore so that's a uh, that's again that's when you disconnect from reality <laughs> that's what happens folks you, you you get a world that's not cooperating reality on reality's terms is what health is all about or right, evie i've kept you long enough i appreciate you being here so much let's do some more stuff together i miss you and uh uh do you have another book coming out or anything else you want to promote no just we, i've been doing good the book and uh, just uh, a whole bunch of different things but it was such a pleasure to be on and i miss you guys and just thank and you so much for are having you, me are you are you are you back in, again are you in new york city now i am i'm in new york city but i come out to la all the Susan. time so i'm going to visit well we're coming to new york in a couple of weeks we should go see you guys have dinner or something Okay. Go get shot up at yes. Peter Luger. Yeah, we had we we were in a gun battle at Peter Luger's in Brooklyn <laughs> last time, last time we went out for a steak. Yeah, I know it's great. We'll tell you the whole story later. <laughs> so you, I swear it, it follows me everywhere. Tragedy. My instincts were good. My instincts were good. I, in fact, I was shocked how good my instincts were. I, I didn't, you know, it was a very unclear situation, but I, I did. A, I was surprised I did as well as I did. I, we, I, I want to go back there though. All right. Well, we'll take an FBI agent with us. That would you be guys perfect. Live on the island? Do you live in Manhattan or do you live? Uh, yeah, we're close by. We'll take you. Yes, please, all right, all right, please. Don't, don't tell them everybody where I'm she just, lives. I know. She, believe me, she won't tell you. I know. Trust me. She she scrubs all of her pictures. She scrubs everything. Trust me. She's, she's lectured me on that multiple times. I'm like, don't post all right. that. I'm like, it's all got all this on it. Uh, she pulled me like, seriously, seriously, you have to take these geolocator off of these pictures. Like, okay, okay, got it. So. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, we'll talk soon and you take care of yourself. Okay. You guys, all my best. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Right. Uh, the great Evie Pomporis. Uh, we're going to have, I wanted to tell that story on after dark. Oh, we'll tell it. Don't worry. I sent we'll tell the it. video. We'll tell it in great detail. I sent the audio to Nadav. Perfect. Perfect. So we'll, we'll go into more detail. In that. <laughs> uh, Caleb? There was that one. And then there was another one, another thing that happened. I can't remember what it was. Do you remember? Uh, when you you blurted some stuff out on the radio? No, not when I blurted out.
where the other other time where you were exposed. You're, I can't remember you're speaking what it code. was. I can't, I can't remember you. what it was. There were two things yeah, we'll think about it. that I totally forgot about. It's like it, it wasn't that traumatic because I don't have like flat. Right. Although whenever people drive up next to me in a in a big truck, mm. I always I just I don't look over. Uh, Caleb, you like today's episode, so just uh, if you ever have any more conspiracy theories, Evie's your Evie's your man. Oh yes, I I already have a, a list of things to ask <laughs> <So>. next time. <laughs> that was really interesting. <laughs> oh goodness gracious all right we thank you guys for being here uh it's again uh, naomi wolf tomorrow we're going to get a catch up with her and hear why she's been silenced and what she's got to say i again this naomi's been a very important academic voice not should we call her academic i mean she's been quasi-academic for many years and all she of a sudden so amazing all of a sudden crossed over some line where she had to be destroyed and uh, i say we uh, still listen to what she's got to say. I, I, I'm interested. I have a general sort of attitude when people silence people. I just want to know what they what, what were you saying? I want to hear what you got to say. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.